Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. You can learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us on Sunday mornings at El Dorado High School in the Performing Arts Center at 9 and 11 a.m. Here we are. It's new. It's a year, and it's a new year. You know what I'm saying? All right, phones down. Let's go. Right there. All right, uh, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Um, I've got new flip-flops on today, brothers and sisters, so I'm very excited about that. These are Christmas flip-flops, so, so thank you, and you're welcome. Uh, welcome to Vox. Hello. <sighs> welcome. And welcome to you. Uh, my name is Mike, and we're so glad that you are with us today. It is, uh, I want you to understand, we are dealing, we're in the middle of an atmospheric river, guys. And if you thought Stormwatch 8000 HD had a field day with an eighth of an inch of rain, they are going berserk. They're going berserk with the atmospheric river. Can, can I get an amen? Do you understand? Do you understand what's happening? Do you understand this is a once in a 10 year storm we're dealing with in Northern California? And NBC Channel 4 sent a van that has a radar attached up to San Francisco just so we could get very clear views of how much rain they're getting. Guys, you understand? So welcome, I'm glad you made it. I know it's, it's hard out there. Um, if you are new with us, uh, the way you can find out more, if you dare, is to go on uh, voxoc.com and you can find out more about us. We've got a couple things coming up you're gonna wanna know about. First of all, this week, uh, we have something called a new to Vox dinner, which is very self-explanatory. Uh, it's at our place. There's food, and it's for those of you who are new to Vox and want to find out more. You can sign up online. And then the second thing uh, we're doing is, I think later in the month on the 20th of January, we're having a new to Vox dinner specifically for people in the 18 to 26 year old age range. So, Joanna, you're in. Your husband's not. I'm sorry. Um, uh, and you can sign up for that too. So if you're 18 to 26, how many 18 to 26 year olds we got besides me? Okay, raise your hand. Okay, if you like free food, this is for you. All right, I think it's on Friday. Sign up on our website. All right. Uh, I, I was not here last week. We had Sweet Bonnie here, so she's amazing. Uh, but that means I'm like three weeks behind on questions. And you guys, the questions keep getting longer. And I want you to know, if your question takes up five or six slides when we put it into our system, we're probably not going to answer it in this context. All right? We may do a teaching on it or answer it in a different context. But you're asking such good stuff, and it's so hard. But let's fire up the ones we got. Here we go. Text your questions if you want. Pastor Mike, so what's the first, what's the first part that's wrong with that? What's wrong with that first sentence? Right, pastor, don't ever, please do not ever use that word around me because then I feel like I have to behave. And so I'd rather just, it's just Mike. You keep mentioning you will cover everything in January. What if I die before then? I'll die without knowing these answers. Okay, you're here, it's January. It, we've got, we've got, I think, four or five weeks coming on judgment. You are so lucky. Oh, yes. Oh, hell for January. Let's do it. All right, question two. Loved the 2016 poem, so I did an end-of-the-year poem, guys. Hatchers, you listened to it? You did? Okay, that was no. I did an end-of-the-year poem. Very, very significant. But wished you hadn't said Cali. I don't remember saying that. But let me be clear. Native Californians don't say that and cringe when they hear it. Love you. Okay, K, 
Callie. <laughs> Callie. I'm going back to Callie. Yeah, yeah, I don't care. You guys are weird. You call, you are. You call things the five like it's the only five in the history of the world. No, no, there's other fives out there. I don't care. So Callie, three. So we're, now we're going to talk about hell, right? So what, what the hell happened to Ohio State in the Fiesta Bowl? What? <laughs> Certainly, there will be no defeats like that in the new earth to come. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, that was awful. Next. <laughs> All right, in the message, I'm assuming last week, it was inferred that Peter was the rock in which the church will be built upon in Matthew 16. Remember, there's this very famous verse that says, and upon this rock, I will build my church. I thought this verse was about Jesus as the rock in which the church is built, and that this rock cannot be overcome by Hades and even death. Which interpretation is accurate? Great question. There are actually several more interpretations. So, so Peter gives this confession, you are Jesus, son of the living God. And then, and then Jesus responds and says, uh, this was not revealed to you by men, but this was given to you by my Father. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So the question is, who's the rock? Traditionally, the Catholic Church has said that Peter's the rock. He was the first pope. He was handed the keys of the kingdom. Traditionally, Protestants have said, no, 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 it was Peter's confession of Jesus as Messiah that was the rock upon which the church was built. And, and certainly, yes, Peter had a unique authority, and certainly the confession that Jesus is Lord, both of which were used to build the early church. I've presented a, a view um, that is kind of more Jewish-y that says, no, actually the rock that's being referred to there is the rock in Caesarea Philippi that was called the Gates of Hades. And um, not everyone agrees with that view, so I, I tend to think Jesus was actually referring to a rock that he was standing in front of as the literal rock. Uh, so, so which interpretation is right? You can say all of them in their own way. I, I really do think all of them in their own way. I'm not sure Jesus here is saying that he is the rock because he uses, he, he does this playful thing with Peter's name. He renames him Peter and then uses a word for rock that is based off of Peter's name, but it's not the same word. So it's just this interesting wordplay. So, so I'm not sure what he means. Everyone has uh, a kind of their own favorite interpretation. I tend to think there's a bit of truth in all the interpretations that are out there. Next, why do we as Christians need to pray for protection from the enemy? What freedom does the enemy have with us? Ooh, great question. All right, when we use the phrase the enemy, Christians refer to uh, this, uh, this being in the Bible called the Satan, um, which is a, a title more than it is a personal name that just means the accuser or the adversary or the opposer, that, that the biblical story includes not only rebellion on earth, but rebellion in the heavens, that an, angelic creatures rebelled against the authority and benevolence of God, and now contribute to the evil done by human beings on the earth. And, and the New Testament 
clearly teaches that Jesus has overcome the adversary and is victorious over the adversary, and Christians need to be on guard against the adversary. And so that has led us, that tension has led us into two kind of polar extremes. On the one hand, some of us, uh, some in uh, the Christian church are so focused on spiritual warfare that they see demonic attack behind everything that goes wrong, right? I've got the flu. It is the demon of flu. Uh, it is the demon of a flat tire or traffic. I mean, and you're just like, no, it can just, it can be a virus, right? It's really okay that it's just a virus. And, but on the other hand, there are those of us, and I fall in this camp, who don't take the New Testament warning seriously about the fact that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. Jesus talks about this, and so it's tough to have faith in Jesus and have Jesus walking around doing battle in the spiritual realms and then divorce that from our following of him. So there is a sense that Jesus very clearly teaches that the enemy is real, that the enemy opposes the work of God on earth, and the enemy is, is uh, at work in provoking evil, so some of the evil done to you, some of the evil we do to others, some of the natural evil in the world is the responsibility of our adversary. But more than that, when you open yourself up to persistent rebellion, even as a follower of Jesus, the New Testament teaches you can give our adversary a foothold. And the, 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 the example Paul uses is that of anger. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, lest you give the enemy. And the word is topos. The word means a room. And so there is a sense that, that, that in the New Testament, believers can be demonized. Not demon-possessed, but demonized in the sense of having uh, spiritual forces that you've yielded authority over who now um, uh, tempt, accuse, um, condemn uh, people who... Who, who in Christ are free, but in actuality have given some of the authority um, uh, that Christ has over them back to the enemy and so come under his influence. Now that is a boatload of theology. There's some great books. If you text in and you're like, hey, I want to read more about this, I've got a good book recommendations for you. Last one. When God created earth and everything in it, including humanity, it was good and perfect, right? Depends what you mean by perfect. It was good. If perfect means without evil, then you're, yes. But if perfect means unchanging and static, then no. Because the human beings were to take creation somewhere. It wasn't just static. It was embedded with potential that the first human beings were supposed to cultivate. And God was in the garden with them, right? Right. Even in the midst of that, we rebelled, right? Right. Next. Does this story have potential to repeat itself? That's a great question. Even after heaven returns to earth and he is in our midst once again, is it possible that we'll rebel again and be separated again? And if not, what changes? And if something changes so that we will be protected from rebellion and sin in the future, why didn't God afford us this protection from the beginning? Oh, someone's paying attention. Is it because as his creation, we would otherwise have never been able to have a proper perspective of him? Or I've heard it said that it may be because he wanted us to have free will. Really, is that true? If so, once he redeems the earth, no more free will? Thanks. <laughs> so do you guys see what you do? Do you see? 
Like, I have, I have questions that are three times that length, that are amazing questions, and we would love them, and we honor them, and we bless them. All right. I've said a little bit about this before. We'll talk more about it here in the next several weeks, but, but here's my take. The Bible, I think the Bible does not hold open the possibility that the fall will happen again. And the reason is because Revelation has this incredible image where literally death and Hades itself are thrown into this thing called the lake of fire. In other words, in the biblical narrative, and we're gonna talk a lot about this, what is the punishment of sin? Death. From the very beginning all the way through, the punishment of fallenness is death. When death and Hades, the residents of the dead, are thrown into this thing called the lake of fire, that says to me, removes the possibility of the reenacting of the fall. Now, why did the fall happen to begin with? Well, I think the biblical narrative is really clear. God wants partners, not puppets. And I've also said, I do think we'll have freedom in heaven. Absolutely. We simply will not choose to sin in the reality of his presence with us. Why did the first human beings? Because I, I believe God set the, the tree of good and evil in front of them and gave them a commandment so that they would learn to love and trust him, not as puppets, but as partners. And so how I see this uh, very simply is that, yes, we were able to sin in the fall, I do believe that theoretically we would be able to sin in the new heavens and the new earth, but we will simply not do so. Now, there are loads of people that disagree with what I just said. So we're going to talk about it and you get to make up your own mind. All right? All right. Let's talk about hell, shall we? All right. Uh, John 3.16, go ahead and put it up. If you remember several months ago, we started on one verse. For God so loved the world, he gave his son, whoever believes shall not perish. And so that kicked off a huge conversation that you wanted to have. So this is your fault about what it meant to perish. Bless you. We are, and then we put up these two uh, drawings. Here's the first one. This is the classic story we've been told that we live on earth, then there's judgment, and then people are assigned to either go to heaven or to go to hell. And that that classic story is the story that most of us received, uh, was used to scare us into belief in Jesus, um, has been the focal point of most of gospel presentations, right? If you were gonna die tonight, would you go to be with God? And, and has been the subject of really bad films, all right? So, so we want to say that this isn't, quite, this isn't quite the biblical story. The biblical story is a bit fuller than this, and that heaven and hell aren't counterparts in the biblical story. Heaven and earth are counterparts. And so the, the story that we think the, the scripture tells is that God creates the heaven and the earth. There is angelic and human rebellion, so that in a sense, there is a fracture, there is a rupture, there is the entrance of sin and death, into the world, 
And because of that, judgment has to come upon the world so that heaven and earth can be reconciled. The end of the biblical story looks a lot like the beginning of the biblical story. God creates a heaven and the earth. The end of the story, God creates a new heaven and a new earth. In the beginning, human beings lived with God in intimate relationship. In the end, human beings live with God in intimate relationship. We don't spend forever in heaven. We spend forever in, uh, on a new earth with resurrected bodies, with our God, doing human things. So, our picture of heaven, picture of hell, I think need to radically, radically change. Now, to talk about, so we've covered a bit of all of this. I want to talk about this judgment. And I want to spend, I don't know, three or four weeks on that. Next slide. And I want to ask a bunch of questions. I get paid the big bucks for these sort of original titles. So today we're going to talk about the why of judgment. Why is judgment needed? Who is judged? How judgment works? Where the place of judgment is? And when the place or the time of judgment is? All right, make sense? At the end of this, every single question you've ever had will be answered, not even remotely. But we'll do our best to kind of talk about, uh, to present a more fully orbed view of what God is doing when God, it says that God judges the earth. Make sense? So today we're going to talk about the why of judgment. Now this is going to feel very seminary. Sometimes we talk inspiration. Sometimes we talk perspiration. Sometimes we talk motivation. This is seminar. This is just like information. And the reason is we're doing biblical theology. All right? The goal of this, the next several weeks, is to convince you and, and me that our view of God is much smaller and not as beautiful as it should be. And one of the primary reasons for this is because we misunderstand the biblical story on the point of judgment. All right? So we're going to do lots of heavy theology, text in your questions if they're short, and don't bash Ohio State. All right? Here we go. There are four reasons why God has to judge the earth. The first one is this, and, I, and I'm stealing these subject, uh, the first three subject headings from a book by Joshua Ryan Butler. It's called Skeletons in God's Closet, and I really like the way he said this. First reason, he said, was something called the deception of appearances. When God's judgment comes upon the world, the truth of things will be told. In other words, there is much that goes by the name Christian that isn't Christian. There's much that's done in the name of Jesus that isn't of Jesus. There, there, human, humanity, but particularly Western Americans, spend a lot of time on appearances, and when God judges the earth, what is real will be shown for what it is. Not what we've said, not what we've meant, not what we intended, not what we pretended, but what was actually real. And if heaven and earth are to be reconciled, the truth about us and about what we've done and what was done to us has to be told. So here are all the images, 1 Corinthians 4. Paul's talking about judging himself, and he says, therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to what? To light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. How awesome is that? 
Can't wait. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Or, next, in Romans, this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Or, go if you would to Luke chapter 12. What's the one thing Jesus hated when he walked the earth? I mean, and, and there are other things, I'm sure, but the one thing that he spent a lot of time bashing, what was it? Kelly, you're right. Religious hypocrisy. That's why when people will say who are like skeptical or they're outside the church or whatever, and they'll say, yeah, the church is full of hypocrites and I hate it. And I'm like, yeah, I think Jesus hates it too. He was really clear about how much he could not stand hypocrisy. You know those people that appear godly, but they're molesting kids. Those people that appear godly, but they're embezzling. The people, see, see for, for heaven and earth to be reconciled, the truth about those people has to be spoken. The problem is, if their truth has to be spoken, so does ours. <laughs> so, Jesus, meanwhile, verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 12, meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, and he said this, be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, yeast is an image in the Bible of a, of a tiny bit of something that infects everything else. So for Jesus, hypocrisy could corrupt spiritual life. Be on guard against hypocrisy. Now, what's hypocrisy? In the first century, it was a theater term. That referred to the when you were uh, evidently in Greek theater, and Jesus grew up not far from a Greek theater in Sepphoris. Uh, in Greek theater, you wore masks to portray emotion. You just didn't act sad or act happy. You wore a mask that had a sad face or a mask that had a happy face. So a hypocrite was just initially someone who wore a mask. Jesus, as far as we know, Jesus is the first person to use that word pejoratively against the religious leaders of Judaism. They portray themselves one way. And in Matthew 23, he just loads up on these guys and goes nuts. I mean, they're children of snakes and they're whitewashed tombs. I mean, he just goes crazy. And, and the thing that is so scandalous about that is that the Pharisees are the most like evangelical Christians. If you just drew a line of the Jewish groups in Jesus's day and the Christian groups in our day, we're most like the Pharisees, consumed with evangelism and the word of God and maintaining purity. And they were the ones who had the hardest time seeing the beauty of Jesus. And, I, and you just go, oh, well, that's interesting. And so Jesus just simply announces, be on guard against this. Why? Verse 2. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight and what you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Holy moly. So this isn't, this isn't just Paul cooking up something. This, this is a deep teaching Jesus says against hypocrisy. That's why, that is why, look at me. That is why the Bible so highly commends confession. Bring the truth to light now or later. It will be brought to light. So one of, the one of the things that's powerful about confession is that you're speaking, I mean, the word confess just simply means to speak out, to agree with. 
And so it's just fascinating. Why does God need to judge the world? Because we all lie to each other. We all fool each other. We're all concerned about appearances with each other, right? Particularly religious leaders. I'm glad I'm not one of those guys. You know what I'm saying? These guys are toast. Oh, my word. So why does God have to judge the world? To say and to reveal what's real. And for those of you who've been abused, and your abusers hit it, for those of you that had to have kept family secrets, for those of you who've been deeply wounded by the hypocrisy of others, the truth needs to be told. And it will be. Problem is that, evidently, that's an all skate. (laughs) That's an all play. We're all getting that. And to reconcile heaven and earth, it's necessary. Okay, second reason. The brutality of human history. Can we agree? Can we agree? I mean, okay, so Fort Lauderdale, right? That gets shot up. And then uh, uh, um, somebody drove into some, some folks in Jerusalem this morning. And I mean, like every day now, I, I can hardly even watch or check news sites because it's just more shootings and it's more mayhem and it's more chaos. And, it just, and maybe it's always been that and the world is just now smaller. But it just, it's awful. It's just like, okay, what next? Of course, something else. And so the Bible asks this question. Would it be okay if God saw the brutality of human history and didn't care? Or is God more beautiful when he sees the brutality of human history and hates it? Which would you rather have? A God who looks at genocide and just says, well, you made your bed, now live in it. We're a God who hates what human beings do to his image bearers, right? And so you have in Genesis, if you have a Bible, Genesis chapter four, the first murder, there's this really interesting phrase that's used. Adam and Eve have kids, very famously Cain and Abel, One gets jealous of the other. Cain takes his brother Abel out into the fields and murders him. Verse 9 of Genesis 4. Then the Lord said, Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied, am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what is it that you've done? Listen, your brother's what? Blood cries out to me from the ground. Which is interesting. So it's the idea that Abel's human cries were no longer heard, right? Cain had strangled them or suffocated them or whatever. But that now he was dead, the blood that was spilt amplified the guilt of Cain in God's eyes. In other words, it amplified Abel's voice. It didn't silence it. So imagine if one murder, blood cries out, So imagine six million Jews in the Holocaust, right? Or or imagine in the the rapes and the murders and the abusive situation. I mean, just um, multiply that like ad infinitum. And what's it like over thousands of years? How many murders? How many wars? I mean, the earth is soaked in the blood of victims, correct? And there must 
be an accounting if heaven and earth are to be reconciled. Or in Exodus, remember God's people are enslaved in Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. Next. So I've come down to rescue them. Verse 9, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. I've seen the way the Egyptians are treating them. So one of the things that Jesus and Paul and the writers of the New Testament talk about is that in the new heavens and the new earth, justice will be done. Justice will mark the earth. But there has to be judgment. Why? Because the ground cries out. The earth is soaked in blood. Third reason. Next. The scriptures teach that creation itself, isn't this fun? Happy New Year. I was looking at what other churches were doing for New Year's, and it's like, okay, here's financial freedom, and, and here's like some tips about how to live a better life, and I'm like, man, you guys really should go somewhere else. I, you really should. Um, but if you're going to understand judgment, the why of judgment is one of the most significant points. If heaven and earth are to be reconciled, think about the implications so the third thing the scriptures teach, and it's really, really interesting to me, go to Romans chapter 8. It teaches that creation itself is fallen. Like, not just human beings are fallen, but like the stuff of earth is fallen and corrupt too. And it waits for redemption. So Romans chapter 8, Paul says this very famously for you church folk. You know this passage, Romans 8, verse 18 I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will re be revealed in us. Man, how great, how great if that's true. That'd be awesome. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. In other words, the redemption of creation is tied to the redemption of human beings. For the creation was subjected to what? Frustration, which is an interesting word, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, and hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So I find that to be a fascinating image. Here's the idea. I guess I'm the only one that finds that to be fascinating. But here's the idea. Adam and Eve were created to have dominion over creation, correct? It says that multiple times. They're to have authority over the fish and the birds of the sky and the animals on the land and over every creature that moves along the ground. I mean, this is said like three or four times. When human beings listen to the words of the talking snake, okay, and we can talk about that another time, Instead of having authority over creation, what have human beings done? They've allowed creation to have authority over them. Make sense? They were supposed to listen to their wise and sovereign and benevolent king, and instead they listened to a bit of creation and follow the temptation that is presented to the first couple to have their own way 
to walk in their own autonomy. And because of that, human beings now, instead of exercising wise sovereignty over creation, now add to its corruption. And so, in the biblical story, it's not just the human beings that need redemption, but it's the earth itself that needs redemption too. And if heaven and earth are going to be reconciled, earth has to be freed from its bondage. Last one, are you ready? It's fascinating stuff, I know. Last one. Oh, and our favorite, the darkness of humanity. Ooh. Ephesians, Paul puts this devastatingly well. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. This is that enemy we talked about earlier. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now think about what he's just said here. Keep that up if you would. Human beings are subject to two things, right? First, in the scriptural teaching, again, whether or not you buy this, these are great conversations to have. In the scriptural teaching, human beings are under the, we're born naturally into the world, and the world is un, held hostage by this adversary, this very powerful spiritual being. Because of that, our natures are bent towards what is evil, bent towards self, bent towards the darkness within. But the second thing that Paul says, not only we're bent by outside forces, we're bent by inside forces. That we are, by nature, folks that just want to follow our desires to wherever they lead us. That, that we are dark and fallen, and that sin is our middle name. And remember, sin just doesn't mean like the, like, like the big time bank robberies and I'm pillaging or something like that. Sin in the Bible is just any time the mark of God is missed. And so that can be ego, that can be jealousy, that can be, I mean, that can be any number of mundane things that you and I have just come to call normal because the world system is corrupt too. Now, if you're wondering, okay, this is fantastic. Thanks for this. Can't wait to move on. I'll come back in February. <laughs> the picture that's painted in the Bible, and this is where it flips a little bit for me. The picture painted in the Bible is that, that the judgment of God, and we'll talk more about how and when and where and who, the judgment of God is great news. It's not bad news that God is judging the world for the people of God, it's always been great news. Because how do you get to a, from a world full of suffering and deceit and evil and darkness to a world in which God says there will be no crying or suffering or pain? How do you get from one to the other? Well, the Bible's answer is that God is going to shine the light of truth on everything, that God is going to hold those accountable for evil accountable for their evil, that God is going to bring a judgment that is sometimes likened to fire in the biblical imagery, and that God is going to purge evil and suffering and disease from his good world so that heaven and earth can be reconciled. In biblical, like, in biblical parlance, that's hopeful. 
That's not, that's not crushing. That's good news. That's good news. If the doctor looks at your cancer and says, we can eradicate that, is that judgment or is that hope? Right? I mean, who wants a God that looks at the mess of me and the mess of human life and just says, eh? No, I think we want a God who is ticked about the injustice and the oppression and the greed and the lust and the pride that infects his good world. See, it's not anger that motivates God's judgment. Manimuin, this is the point. It is not anger that motivates God's judgment. It's actually love. It's actually love that motivates his judgment. And for us, we have no idea how love and judgment go together, right? Because for us, judgment or wrath or anger, it's flipping, it flies off the handle, it's disproportionate. But think about it, parents. The cancer that eats away at your child, do you hate that cancer? Does it, does it, does it like arouse your wrath? Would you do anything to get rid of it? Is it because you don't like your daughter who has the cancer? No, it's because you adore your daughter that you would do anything to eradicate the cancer, correct? So in the scriptures, love is what provokes judgment. What has been done to you and what you have done to others, the image bearers that God has himself created, he is so passionately devoted to, he cannot and will not allow the evil and the suffering and the tragedies of human life to just simply disappear without an accounting. And for those of us who shelter in Messiah Jesus, this is good news. See, Jesus comes in in one aspect of the gospel story as the one who's not only taken the wrath of God for this, but as the one who shelters now the purging of evil that has to be done in us. And so in the biblical story, judgment's great news. And if we're really honest, we know this. See, even the most hardened skeptic, even the most hardened skeptic, when they see a child sold into prostitution, there's something deep down that says that shouldn't be that way. Even the most hardened skeptic, when we see just another massive oil spill that kills thousands of animals, just for the, in virtue of the greed of the multinational multinational corporation, isn't there something in us that just says, that shouldn't be this way, right? I mean, we, we get ticked off because SeaWorld is holding whales. We get ticked off, right, for all, I mean, our image bearing can't help but show itself. We hate to see our world corrupted. We hate what human beings do to each other. Even the most hardened atheists among us have a, have a sense of, nah, it shouldn't be that way. And that and that is a faint echo of what God himself feels like. It's not, it's not anger that motivates his judgment. I think it's love. And so, brothers and sisters, to start with why. See, we have a vested interest in minimizing how bad the world is and how bad we are, correct? Hello? Anybody? Like, I have a vested interest in, in minimizing how corrupt and dark my heart is and how corrupt human relationships are and how fallen the world seems to be. And, and we all subtly believe the lie that, well, if we just had better technology, it, if, if we just had 
more education, if we just had the right political party in place, this would, this would get better. And the biblical narrative is no, it actually, no. Yes, there can be improvements, and yes, we're to war against the fallenness, particularly among the redeemed, yes, of course. But that ultimately, every human scalpel designed to remove evil will be corrupted by it. And it is only the loving, righteous judgment of God that will make the world right. And that instinctively we all know that human beings can't fix it ourselves. It has to be fixed elsewhere. And so for those of us who shelter in Messiah Jesus, God's coming again isn't bad news. It's not an interruption in an otherwise awesome life. And I don't know about you, the older I get, now I'm in my late 20s, the older I get, see, when I was young, I used to think, you know, that I would hear about Jesus coming back, coming back again, and I'm like, ah, that's a bummer. I need to get married first. You know what I'm saying? Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, and, you know, I want to I have a family first, and there's all this stuff I want to do in human life. So, Jesus, can you just wait? You know, like, <laughs> I mean, so dumb. And the older I get, and the more people that die of cancer... And the more people that commit suicide, and the more people that can't get out of bed because of depression, and the more people I come into contact who are abused, and the more people who simply sit in shame and loathing, and the more people who've made such a mess, they'll never see their kids again. The more people I come into contact, and the deeper I see my heart, I simply cannot wait for Jesus to come and make the world the way he intended it to be. Because I'm tired of it. I'm so tired of it. And so, brothers and sisters, we sit in the recognition that we need help and we need rescue. And the central message of Jesus is that that rescue came to earth in his person. And that those of us who choose now to shelter in him, do we, is there an accountability for us? Absolutely. Will the light of truth be shown on us? You bet. But judgment doesn't have to be bad news because it's good. And we cannot wait for the day when there will be no more crying or sorrow or pain. So let me pray part two next week. Oh, this is heavy. Lord Jesus, this is heavy. I so easily delude myself into thinking that my secrets will never get out and that the thoughts that would be horrifying to be broadcast, that you still see them. And what's astounding to me is how much you still love, how much you refuse to condemn those who are in Christ Jesus, how much there is grace and mercy. And, and Lord, I pray, I pray for our community there would be a sense of urgency in us that this is not an endless parade of Sundays, an endless parade of Mondays, an endless parade of Tuesdays. But these are, culturally, in our country, these are, these are unique times. And that you would equip us and walk among us to be salt and light, to be bearers of the ministry of reconciliation, to be people of hope, that you haven't given up on this. And so God, to that end, we come now and we draw close to you 
with our worship, our singing. We pray that you would receive this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So um, here's what I'd love you to do. I'd love you to stand just for a moment, if you would. And let's sing, let's sing a song together. And then for those of you that, that want to sit, please sit. We, we don't stand on proprieties. But there's something about focusing our body and our minds on something other than us in our weeks. So part of what worship does is we're singing our prayers, yes, but it also refocuses our imaginations, refocuses our perspective. And so always, always, if you want to sit, stand, please feel free. But let's do this first one together as we orient ourselves toward our God. Awesome. Just shuffling. We're just shuffling. Brothers and sisters. Okay, I thought you were leaving. This is my friend Sunil. Say hello. Say hello. Say hello. All right. Good morning. He's going to courageously share his story this morning. One of the huge values we have in our community um, is uh, to be a place that's safe enough to talk about anything. And so one of the things we do to embody that is we have folks um, courageously share kind of where they're at and what God is up to and where it's dark and where it's light. So Sunil's going to do that for us. I was raised in a Christian home, a blessing that a lot of people have not received. I went to church every Sunday. My parents were both involved in various church ministries. I went on missions trips by myself at the ages of 13 and 14 and was on fire for God when I entered high school. These mission trips were, um, there was this outreach called Teen Missions. I don't know if anyone is familiar with that, but it was a great outreach and I was exposed to a lot of great things at those ages. Prior to all that and during my childhood, I was homeschooled and a lot of the reaction was, Oh, that explains a lot of things about you. So, <laughs> yes, I was homeschooled through freshman and high school, so in case you were wondering. <laughs> looking back, and I'm not to blame that the homeschooling would happen, but looking back, that's what kind of made the transition to high school extremely difficult. I came in as a sophomore, so kindergarten through freshman, it was basically me and my mom with a support group, and all of a sudden you get to high school, and it's like changing classes, what's this? Lunch periods, what's this? Getting up at seven in the morning, what's this? So it was a, it was a rough transition. But, um, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> so from my first year on, it was a pretty slow decline in my walk. And this became the paradigm for my young adulthood. Since that time, there have been many ups and many downs, but it never strayed far from my faith, even though I was pushed the boundaries. Um, a lot was peer pressure. You want to fit in, you say the right things, and you do the right things, or the wrong things. So through my old, young adulthood, I was struggling, just going up and down, up and down. Um, then my dad got sick. At first, it was just an annoying cough that sometimes we'd wonder, like, what's going on? Is it allergies? Are you just sick? And he was fine with the doctors, and they said he was fine. Then there's the weight loss, and a lot of weight loss, and then more coughing and more coughing. Watching this whole thing unfold, I never really thought or embraced the idea that my dad might not live to see me get married and have children. The one thing he wanted most for me, and that was like his dream. My dad's Indian, and so they are all about family and big families and kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. So 
something he always wanted from me. And watching him go through all this and just wondering in the back of my mind, is he ever going to stop coughing? Why is he losing so much weight? What, what's going on here? He was finally diagnosed with something called pulmonary fibrosis. I don't know if many of you are familiar with that, but um, you look it up, and what I did is, you know, everyone Googles things. And usually it's about five years from diagnosis is when the patient dies, but I didn't believe that. I'm like, my dad's a strong Christian. We're gonna get through this. It's just a cough, it's just weight loss, it's, it's no big deal. Then one night, um, as he was at home, and we had a nurse there at that point, he stopped breathing for a brief moment. And I will never forget the fear that passed through me. As I stared at him, listening to the nurse go through all the procedures, all I could think was, God, give him air, please. His eyes suddenly opened, and he started breathing. Looking at me, he said something that will forever stay close to my heart. He looked me in the eye and said, don't be scared. And the way he said it was almost like slapping me on the backside of the head going, you idiot, stop being scared, I'm fine. And I didn't share that sentiment. I was scared out of my mind. I've never experienced someone that close to me going through something that, that heavy. And at that moment, I fully realized how strong his faith was. His walk, his love, his morals were never compromised, and it always made me feel like I was a terrible Christian and worse son. I can never compare myself. I'm like, how is he always able to quote scripture and have faith in all these hardships? After that, that next morning, he passed away. I got that call at five in the morning. And, how long ago was that after diagnosis? Um, about three and a half years. It was very quick. Um, but when you're that close to somebody, you don't realize, you just see it, and I was there almost every day, and it's like, oh, he's going to get better, and then he just progressively got worse and worse. Um, that was November 21st of 2015. And that's kind of where my journey to Vox began. Um, in that time of my dad's sickness, I also got a new job, and also was getting that nudge from God that maybe that my time at my current church was coming to an end. At that point, I didn't even know Vox existed. I was serving on a worship team at a church that had been going to for almost 20 years. I was stuck in a rut, uh, a very deep rut. And like I mentioned before, being around my dad always made me feel like I was not being a good enough Christian. This was obviously not his fault for making me feel that way. It was just my own insecurities, but it made me feel like I didn't belong at my church. Looking around on Sundays, I was surrounded by families. Everyone was happy and going on picnics and doing all this great church stuff. <laughs> I felt left out and alienated. I, I want to make sure everyone knows that that church I was at was an amazing church, and I have an amazing community and amazing But you don't pastor. do picnics at churches that suck. You don't do picnics <laughs> at churches that suck. Exactly. Um, so I was looking through this, but I needed something else. I, I didn't know what, but I just needed something else, something that that brought me in. And I realized after 20 years, it, it finally dawned on me that this wasn't the right fit for me. And the only thing keeping me at the church was me serving on the team, which is not a good reason to be at church. Uh, what I realized through that, it's not about just serving and ministering. It's, it's so much more. It's that community and reaching out to people and, and so forth. And that's something that I wasn't getting there. I needed faith like my dad. 
So after sitting and praying with my pastor at the time, I made the decision to leave, and now here I am. Still reeling from the loss of my dad, but thankful that I am here. It's because of my dad that I was able to confront the fear of not knowing what lies ahead. His endless supply of prayers for me to find a place where God wants me has been answered. And I'm still a work in progress. Yes. <laughs> but I know that there is a hope. Music, my faith, and my family are the tools I use to dig myself out of despair and hopelessness. Worship was my dad's favorite thing to do, even though he had probably the worst singing voice I have ever heard. I kid you not. The funny thing is, there's really no one musical in my family, so I come to play piano is beyond me, but um, <laughs> oh, we know why. When I started to, play, to learn to play the piano, his only requests were worship songs. And now, every time I play, I think of him. It's amazing how the simple act of singing, or trying to sing, can help heal wounds shallow and deep. This is something he taught me, and it's something that I'll never forget. Um, and what was important for me about sharing this was this is kind of the first time I really publicly avowed what's going on, what happened with my dad and what's going on. Just knowing me and meeting him for the first time, you would never figure. But this whole year and a half, I've just had this wall of numbness in my heart, and I didn't know what to do. I spoke to a couple of pastors, I spoke to friends, I, I spoke to my mom, who's a strong Christian, and we prayed and prayed and prayed, and I just never, ever felt, I guess, what you're supposed to feel when someone you love goes away. Um, so, as of right now, this is kind of the beginning, like the genesis of my journey to kind of heal and repair the wounds that were left when my dad passed away. Um, and that's why I'm so thankful for this opportunity in this church that gave me this, this, this time to, to speak and for you to listen to kind of get an insight of what's going on. So I thank you for that. Thanks, Steve. Okay. Hey. Thank you. I'm proud of you. I'll take it. Thank you, my brother. We read that passage in Ephesians chapter 2 about the darkness in humanity and uh, we didn't read all of it because there's this great next verse and this is what we celebrate when we come to the table like the rest it says we were by nature deserving of wrath but because but because of his great love for us God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ when we were dead in transgressions and it is by grace that you have been saved. And so we celebrate the, the table every single week. And we come at it from different angles. And we celebrate different things about it. This, however, this morning, we want to come to the table in recognition of the giftedness that this is. That we can't save ourselves. We can't earn it. Strive for it. The, the darkness is too deep. It's too pervasive. The corruption is too all thorough. I mean, it's, we need rescue. And so for those of us that take the bread and the cup this morning, we're just, we're, we're just crying out for help. It's the assurance, the reminder of what love and judgment look like when they collide on the cross of Jesus. It is the renewal of our vow to shelter inside Messiah Jesus. It is the promise that God will return and put things back to the way he intended. And so we invite each and every one of you to the table. For those of you struggling with gluten, the sin of gluten-freeness, that table right there is for you. There'll be public shaming later. 
Um, for those of you that want to worship um, through finances, uh, you guys are ridiculously generous. Um, we just had a month where it, the, it was crazy how generous you were. So thank you. Um, we never want to talk a lot about money. Uh, but obviously, it's important and needed. But for many of us, it's an expression of our allegiance to Jesus. It's not guilt or duty or drudgery. And so if that's you, there are participation boxes near the doors. We'll also have folks up here after they hand out the elements who would just love to pray for you. And whatever, whatever heaviness you're carrying in here, we'd love and be, we would be honored to pray and join with you in that. And then lastly, we're going to sing some more. I love what you said, uh, first of all, about bad singing, because I'm that guy too. But secondly, I love what you said about how singing can sometimes heal. And, um, and so perhaps uh, there are a few of us who need just to be reminded of words that bring comfort and hope. So uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then it's our turn to respond. And the table will be open, prayer, uh, join us, sit, stand, whatever you want to do. But um, this is, <laughs> we don't feel like once the Bible's closed, God stops speaking and moving and acting. And so this is our participation in our response to what it is that we've heard. And so God, we thank you for a brother, Sunil, and we thank you that even though we grieve, it's not as those, it's not like those who have no hope. And God, um, our prayer for him, our prayer for us is that we would learn how to lament the reality of evil in the world while at the same time being people of hope that it won't always be this way. And so, Lord, we need your grace to do that. We need your presence and your power. And so we call upon you to meet us at the table this morning as we come just renewing our vows to you, receiving by grace the gift of your Son and the salvation he brought and brings. Father, we thank you and we give thanks. So we take the bread and we take the cup not only in gratitude, but also in anticipation. We bless your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? So we've sung together. We've opened the scriptures together. We've partaken in the sacrament together. And now we go to be, uh, for those of us who follow Jesus, we go to be the church. Um, this was just a teaching event. This was a staff meeting. This was a corporate singing event. This is not church. Um, you are church, and so you go now into the world to be ambassadors and ministers of reconciliation. And, um, and so to that end, we always end with a blessing that, you know, we want this to be a place of healing so that you will become a healer. We want this to be a place of comfort so that you will become a comforter. We want this to be a place of challenge so that you will become a truth teller. Uh, what we do here, we hope, extends into the rest of life. And so to that end, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you and may he give you peace in these days. Brothers and sisters, FoxOC.com, new to Vox Dinner, 18 to 26 year olds, sign up, special one for you. See you later. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. Participate in the Vox Community at VoxOC.com participate.